Thank you, guys. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Psalms. How many like the book of Psalms? Amen. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate you. Let's go to book of Psalms, chapter 101, Psalm 101. How many are glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. I want to talk to you today about love and justice, also love and holiness. I'm going to explain to you why it could be love, or, love and justice or love and holiness in just a few moments. Psalm 101, starting in verse 1, says, I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part of it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land. They, that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. That's the standard you should have of those who minister to you. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. Come on, parents. Somebody say amen. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. And the parents said, amen. amen. Y'all getting quiet on me today. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. And everybody said, amen. amen. Every morning. This is what your job will be, not just checking your Facebook, your Instagram, going to work. Every morning, I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Now, unless you're a police officer or working in the military, I don't know if you can actually do that, but that should be your heart every morning to get up and to silence the wicked and to remove the wickedness from the land. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Go back to verse 1, please. Notice what the psalmist says here. In verse 1 of, of yes, Psalm 101, thank you, brothers. I will sing of your love and your justice. What is he going to sing about first? God's what? And what's he going to sing about next? Justice. Is he only going to sing about God's love? No. Is he only going to sing about God's justice? No, he's going to sing about God's love and God's justice. Notice this as we go through that whole psalm again, as I just review it. He says, I'm going to sing of your love and justice, so that means I want to lead a blameless life. I'm going to conduct, conduct the, house, uh, the affairs of my household with blamelessness. I'm not going to look on the vile. I'm going to hate what faithless, faithless people do. I'm not going to have any part of it. I'm going to stay away from the perverse of heart. Let's keep going, my brothers. Please help me out. Thank you. I'm not going to pay attention to the slanderers in my, neighbor, uh, in my neighborhood. I'm not going to listen to them. Whoever has haughty eyes or a proud heart, I'm not going to tolerate them. And my eyes are going to be on the faithful of the land. I'm going to look for those whose walk is blameless. Brothers, could you just give me the, the thing up here today and the, the, the trackpad? Thank you. I want to give them a few moments. Talk to your neighbor about what you love about church and coming to Jesus and everything. Give me the trackpad. Give me the thing. Thank you. Talk to your other neighbor. Meet somebody. You guys know each other across here? Do you know her right here? Get to know her. Take a few moments. Hallelujah. Thank you. And give him the keypad as well. Thank you, my brothers. I think for second service I need to start doing this, okay? Thank you.
Keep talking to your neighbors. I'm giving you permission to talk in church. <laughs> Y'all quiet. Thank you, my brothers. Thank you. I'm going to do this now for second service, okay? Thank you. Let's review this again. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Psalm 101. The psalmist is speaking here. And notice what he says. He says, I'm going to sing of your love. I'm going to sing of your justice. Now notice all the things that he's going to combine in love and justice as we go through these scriptures here. He says, I'm going to be careful to lead a blameless life. I'm not just going to go along with anything. I'm going to make sure that my heart is right. I'm not going to look on anything that is vile. I'm not going to put my eyes on those things. This is a good one for what you do with social media, TV, and so forth. He says, I'm not going to have anything to do with faithless people. So for those who break their word or don't value the things of God, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. He says, I'm not going to pay attention to the slander of my neighbors and what people are saying or the haughty look of eyes, uh, you know, how people have haughty eyes and they're prideful. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for the faithful people. I'm going to hang out with them. Those who are in my house, those who are hanging around me, I'm going to make sure that they're not practicing deceit. I'm going to make sure that they're not speaking falsely. And that's why the Bible says also, Joshua said, as for me in my house, I will serve the Lord. He says, when I get up in the morning, I'm going to put to silence the wicked. I'm going to make sure the wicked know that what they're saying is not right. And then as king, this was King David, he could cut off at evildoers. He was, he was a judge over his land, and he was going to make sure that it was going to be taken care of. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. Now, I want you to notice when you see David talking about this, it all stems from love and justice. Now, this is something that I really, you know, I don't want to get lost in as a theological discussion, talking about all the attributes of God's love, all the attributes of God's justice. But what I want to do is give you more advice on how to apply it to your daily life. But before I get to all of that and applying it to your daily life, I want you to see how profound these concepts are. Now, go with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Because oftentimes people say, well, you know, we can't emphasize the love of God beyond the holiness of God because it's the holiness of God that they sing around his throne. But I'm also going to show you that they sing about the love of God around his throne. So it's going to be a theological contradiction unless you know how to get them to complement each other. What is greater in God, his holiness or his love? Now, we heard the word justice used, and I want to show you now why there is such a thing called justice. It comes from God's perfect character of holiness. But notice this in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord, and we know from John that this is Jesus that Isaiah sees in the Old Testament. And he sees these wonderful six-winged creatures, and what are they calling out to each other in worship to God? Holy, holy, holy. Everybody say that with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the the whole earth is full of his glory. So if I was to ask you, what is more important to God or what comes first, his holiness or his love? Most people would come to this scripture and they would say, Pastor, it's his holiness because from his holiness, his love comes. And it's the holiness that they sing around the throne. Maybe you've heard preachers like myself. I know I've said it. They don't say loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. How many have heard that before? They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But how many know they also sing about his love around his throne? I'm going to show you right now. Let's go to 2 Chronicles. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. I want to show you how they also sing how loving he is. 
So it's not as easy as you think it is to resolve what sounds like a contradiction until we get to the complement of his character. Now notice that the temple of God is built to be a house of God. Even though we know God can't dwell within his temple, uh, dwell within the temple, he, he created all heavens and earth, the Bible says, and that's not even big enough for him. But he's going to make this temple a special place, and he is going to call it his house because he's going to bring his presence there. So God's throne, in other words, is going to reside in the holy of holy place. Now notice this, when they dedicate the temple here in 2 Chronicles, here it is in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, looking at verse 13, as they dedicate what is now going to be known as Solomon's temple, it says, the trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord, and what did they sing? Holy, holy, holy? No, what did they sing? He is good. His love endures forever. Oh, well, hold on. I thought we're all, whenever we come around God's throne, we're supposed to just say, holy, holy, holy. But now they're coming around God's throne, and they're saying he's good. His love endures forever. And I'm going to show you in just a moment in a psalm where I believe they repeated that over and over and over again. I'm going to show you the repetition as well. But then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the what? So the glory of the Lord filled the temple as they sang, He is good and His love endures forever. Well, here they're singing, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. And the sound of their voices filled the, uh, the sound of their voices um, were at the doorpost and the threshold sook. And the temple was filled with what? Smoke representing the glory. So here you see, temple is filled with smoke as they're singing that the Lord is holy. And over here, the temple on earth is filled with the glory of God as they're singing he is good and his love endures forever. So which is greater, God's holiness or God's love? See, that's what I was always taught, and I thought that. Because why? They sang it around his throne, that he is holy. But here, they sing he is love, he is good. So which one? See, I think it's both. I always used to say his holiness because of Isaiah. But then as I began to research, because I, I said, you know, they don't sing loving, loving, loving around his throne, right? Some of you might have learned that from me. But how many know we're supposed to grow in our faith? So as I began to read the scriptures, I was like, well, hold on. That's not all they sing around his throne when his cloud fills the temple. They also say he is good. His love endures forever. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, as you see God in your personal relationship with God is how you're going to feel God treats you. If all you see is God's holiness, then how are you going to feel when you sin? Come on, let's just be honest here. When you sin, if all you see is God's holiness, holy, 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 and holy means he's not like us, separate. That word literally means, Kadesh in the uh, Hebrew, it means to be separate. God is not like us. If you've ever brought, been brought up in a house where there was towels you couldn't use or couches you couldn't sit on or silverware you couldn't use, those would be called holy items, okay? I grew up in a house where there was a whole front room I couldn't sit in. That was a holy room. Okay, there were, there were, you know, utensils, cups, and, and forks, and knives, and things that were in a big glass, you know, cabinet that I couldn't use. They were holy. 
That, that's, that's an example of what it means to be holy. God is separate from us. God is different than us. God is not ordinary. He's extraordinary, okay? So when you think about that, that's amazing. But hold on. When you sin, how does that feel? When that's all you think of is his holiness. Now, what do you think, of, think you are? You're that bamboo spoon that you kept from the yogurt place that you brought home and it's all nasty and you let your kids eat it. That's just telling on myself right here. We collect all these bamboo spoons from the yogurt place. They're green and they get, you know, they're plastic and they get used over and over because we don't waste nothing, you know. So when Nancy saw this being given to us, we're like, we're not throwing this away. We're taking this home. So every time after we go to the yogurt place, we clean off that, clean off that spoon, tuck it in the purse, wrap it in some napkins. That's some new spoons for the kids because they lose them all the time. That's how you feel. You feel like, man, he's so holy, holy, holy. I'm not holy, holy, holy. I just sinned. I'm not blameless. I'm just worthy of blame right now. According to the psalm, I shouldn't even hang out with myself. Now let me ask you this. If you say, well, pastor, I got a solution for that. Next time when you sin, all I want you to think about, pastor, is how much God loves you. Just think about how much he loves you. Think about how much he cares for you. Think about how much he died on the cross. Now let me ask you, that feels good when I sin, but how is that going to help me next time I'm about ready to sin? Am I just going to want to stop sinning now because I think about his love all the time? What if I just start thinking about God's love like sloppy agape? Well, he loves me. You know, he forgave me that one time. He's going to forgive me again. Why? Because he loves me. I'm his favorite. I'm so special. So you see how if you emphasize one over the other, it's going to change the way you look at your life. Because if all you do is emphasize the holiness of God, then when you sin, you're going to condemn yourself and say, man, I'm not holy. I can't do this. But then if you go to the other side, and when you sin, all you do is emphasize the love of God, then you're going to probably take God's grace as being cheap grace, greasy grace, sloppy agape, do whatever you want. God loves you. Let me give you a few more as you work out your theology. Are you ready? Come on, I said, are you ready? Go to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. These are some of the examples I want to give you before I give you some practical understanding. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is to lead you to repentance? What is supposed to lead you to repentance, according to Paul here? God's what? God's kindness. So he says, hey, man, have you forgot this? It's God's kindness that brings you to repentance. So if you go out with us and hear us preach, sometimes you might hear TJ or one of the brothers on the mic saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, you sinners, and preaching like that. And somebody might want to come up to them, tap them on the shoulder and go, brother TJ, has anybody told you this scripture, brother TJ? The Bible says it's God's kindness. In the King James, it says His loving kindness that brings us to repentance. TJ, stop yelling at them so much. Go out there and tell them Jesus loves them. So he's supposed to grab the mic now, right, and go, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. Don't you know Jesus loves you? Is that what he's supposed to be? I mean, uh, be doing it according to this scripture. It says it's God's kindness. What brings us to repentance? 
God's kindness, knowing how kind God is, how nice God is, how merciful God is. And who wrote the book of Romans, y'all? Does anybody know the author? What's his name? Paul. Okay, now let me ask you this. If Paul wrote Romans, who wrote 2 Corinthians? Paul also wrote 2 Corinthians, didn't he? Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 here. Paul wrote Romans, and he also wrote 2 Corinthians here. Let me make sure this is the right passage. I have a bunch of them here. I don't think this is the one. Here we go. We're persuading men. No, let me get you this one. I don't want to give it away. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, therefore, therefore knowing. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Where am I at? Chapter 5, verse 11. Let me see here. Oh, it is there. I didn't even see it. Lord, forgive me. What's wrong with me? I got too much stuff on my mind right now. Look at it. Since then, we know what it is to what? Fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Who wrote 2 Corinthians? Who wrote Romans? Well, hold on here, Paul. Which one do I use? So now you get the mic. It's your turn to preach. You get up there and you go, Jesus loves you, everybody. I just want to tell you Jesus loves you. Now what's Brother TJ going to do? Hey, man, you need to tell him about the fear of the Lord. All you do is tell them about the love of God. You're not getting them ready for judgment. You need to tell them to fear God. Well, then the other one gets up and it starts all over again. Fear God. God's going to judge you. Hell is hot. Heaven's not. Well, hold on. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. Does everybody see where I'm going here? See, it almost sounds like it's a contradiction. Just as I was showing to you before, what is the number one attribute of God? Oh, it's His holiness. How do you know? Because they say it around His throne, holy, 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 in Isaiah 6. But then you go to the dedication of the temple, they're saying how good God is over and over and over again. And let me just show that to you because I didn't get a chance to show you the repetition of it. Go to Psalm chapter 101. Psalm chapter 101 shows us the repetition of God's goodness here. Oh, excuse me, that's not Psalm 101. It's Psalm 130, I believe. Go to Psalm 130 here. Which one is? I got so many scriptures here. Lord, help me. Oh, man, let's try Psalm 89. I got to, let's go Psalm 89 here. Psalm 89, look at it. I will sing of the Lord's great love for how long? How long will I sing of the God's great love? forever. So, oh, I thought we were just going to sing about His holiness forever and ever. No, it says we're going to sing about God's love forever and ever. And then I want to show you the other psalm here. I believe it's Psalm 85. It's going to be one of these psalms. I got so many good ones here. I want to show you where they go back and forth with His loving kindness. Let me uh, look that one up as well. His loving kindness endures forever. How many have seen that psalm before? It's a call and response. Has anybody seen it before? Amen. Let me show it to you right here. His loving kindness endures forever. It is Psalms 136. I don't know if I went there, but I have it written here in my notes as well. Look at this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. What are you supposed to say back? Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. 
Amen. When you go here to the, to the time of Solomon in the temple of 2 Chronicles chapter 5, when we were there in chapter 5 verse 13, and it says here that they were singing, He is good and His love endures forever. We're probably supposed to get the idea that they were repeating Psalms 136 and the glory of God came down. And also, as I just showed you before, we're supposed to sing about God's love forever and ever, but the angels we hear are singing about God's holiness forever and ever. We then go to the New Testament to ask for clarification, and we see Paul says, when you preach, make sure you talk about the kindness. And then he goes to another place, and he says, when you preach, make sure you talk about the fear of God. Are you ready for some more? Go with me now to 1 John. How many know love drives out all fear? How many have heard that before? Amen. Go to 1 John. I believe it's chapter 4. Go to 1 John chapter 4. I'm glad I got some of you guys thinking here today. The Bible says that God is love, right? How many know God is love? And it also says God is holy. So that's another good one. Now, as we get here, it's going to say that perfect love drives out all fear. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. It says, there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with what? Punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So that means if you're afraid and you have issues with God, that means you don't have perfect love, right? And you need to have perfect love so that you don't fear the Lord anymore. How many believe that's good? But how many know, how many know Proverbs says, if you don't fear the Lord, you have no wisdom? <laughs> how many know that? Look at Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Hold on now, Bible. I'm trying to understand this. Or you might be saying, Pastor, I came to get clarity, not confusion. Why are you messing with me? Because I want you to think through the Bible. I'm going to get to a solution that I believe is practical, and some of you have already said it. It's both and. It's not either or. But I want you to see that if you're not careful, how you look at the Scriptures will affect your Christianity. So you'll go walking around with 1 John, oh, perfect love drives out all fear. It's okay if I have an adulterous relationship. I don't fear daddy, God. You know, I might just made an oopsie in an adulterous relationship. God is just going to forgive me and everything's just going to be okay. But yet the Bible says if you don't fear him, you're basically a fool. You're stupid. You're supposed to fear what God can do to you on Judgment Day. But at the same time, you're not supposed to have fear. You're supposed to love Him and not be afraid of Him punishing you. When you preach, you're supposed to warn people about the judgment to come and tell them to fear the Lord. At the same time, you're supposed to tell them about how good God is and how much He loves them. Are you listening with me today? Go with me to Jude. How many have read the book of Jude before? It's a one-chapter book. Go to the book of Jude. Chapter 1, now look at verse 23 and tell me if this starts to help you out a little bit. And then I want to bring it to the practical. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, this, this is just the introduction. This is just the introduction. I wanted to just get you to think about this before I gave you an easy answer. Because I want us, as we love the Word of God, to be honest with the Word of God. And to look at it and let it change us. And not just get stuck in our traditions. 
Now look at Jude here talking at the end about how we're going to practically live out the knowledge of serving God, which is kindness and wrath, love and justice, those kinds of things that we're dealing with today. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. How many of you were some of those that need to be snatched from the fire? You didn't need somebody to go slow with you and be really soft. You needed somebody just to yank you out. Amen. Come on. To others show mercy mixed with fear. Come on. What does that say? Mixed with fear. So you got some mercy, but you need to mix it with some fear. You got some corn, but you got to put some cayenne pepper in there, right? What's that Mexican spice you all put on the elotes? Chile. What else? Canin? Tanin. Tahi. Tahi. There we go. In, in, in knowledge, y'all, we put Tony's on there, which has got cayenne pepper. Yours is similar to cayenne pepper. I'm not going to try to say the name again, but whatever that is, you put it on there. So it's like you go to the American barbecue tomorrow, they're going to have corn. You come over to the Mexican barbecue, they're going to put tahin on the corn. They're going to mix it in there, right? This is what God said. You're going to give them mercy, but some you got to mix it with fear. Yeah, you're going to tell them God forgave you of that adulterous affair, but I, but I got to let you know, you continue in adultery, you're going to go to hell. I, I'm going to tell you, yes, God forgives you. He is kind. He is loving. But I have to mix in there the judgment of God that's to come, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. When we go to the Scriptures, from the Scriptures even that we've read right now, before we go to others, we see that both holiness and love are doing exactly what the Bible said they would do. Remember, we started with Psalm 101. And what did we see here at the beginning? I will sing of your love and what? So you all should have got it, even though I was messing with you. But you're like, oh, he's more holy, or he's more, more loving. What did, what did the psalmist say right at the beginning? I will sing of your love and justice. You never forget those two things. And if you know how to balance those things out in your Christian life, this is where I want to bring out the message. If you know how to balance out God's love and God's justice, also his holiness, which I think is where we get justice from, you'll be able to lead a blameless life. But you have to understand each one of those attributes is real all by itself. And you can't deny one for the other. So let me just show it to you and what it looks like in a person. Who do you think represented both love and justice more than anybody else? Jesus. Did you know the Bible talked about that? When he came, John 1.14, the Bible says he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's amazing, right? Like he's God and yet he takes on flesh. You are a person, and as and for Halloween, you can dress up like a puppy, right? You can dress up like a dinosaur. He came as God and dressed up like a man. Never stopped being God, but became fully man. You all understand the incarnation. That's amazing. But can I show you something else that I think is even more amazing that speaks to the very nature of God? He came full of grace and truth. Think about that. To be able to embody both, to me, is greater than God becoming man. This is the very nature of God. When John said that about Jesus, that he was full of grace and truth, what it was saying there to us is that we have to recognize in Jesus the very nature, the very character of God the Father. 
Because who is the one that we can think of that is full of grace and full of truth? Only God. Are you listening? That's why the Bible says he was made in the image of God, the exact representation. Go to Colossians chapter 2. When we see Christ, we see the very image of the Father. This is who we are supposed to be like. Now, I want you to see this in first, uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the deity lives, what? In bodily form. But keep going. And in Christ, you have been brought to what? Oh, come on, somebody. Did you get it? Everybody, oh, man, I hope you do. I'm going to go slow for you right now. Look at your neighbor and say, you're full of something. But I hope it's grace and truth. <laughs> Look at your other neighbor and say, you full of something. And I hope it's grace and truth. Yeah, man, you full of something, I know. Everybody here full of something. Yes, that's right. That's right. Everybody here is full of something. But I hope that it's full of grace and truth. Now get this. Jesus comes full of grace and truth. Well, how can you do that, Jesus? Jesus, how can you be full of the, uh, the full extension of grace? Think about this just for a minute, grace. Grace means you can forgive everybody. Grace means you can love everybody. Grace means you can look past everybody's faults and mistakes. Who has that to the fullness except God? Nobody. Now watch, truth. Truth means you know everything. You know everything spiritual. You know everything natural. You know everything in the past. You know every true thing in the present. You know everything in the future. How can you know everything that is true unless you're God? So Jesus comes full of grace, full of truth. How does Jesus do that? Because the fullness of deity lived in him. Do you get it? The fullness of deity was in Jesus, not partial deity. He wasn't part God, part man, like a centaur, part man, part horse. That's my horse coming out, you know. That wasn't Jesus walking around going, oh, man, I forgot which one I am today. Got a God head and a, a man body or, you know, a man uh, torso or something. No, he's not a centaur, half God, half man. The Bible says he's fully deity. The Father's fully deity, right? Are you listening? So how was Jesus full of grace and truth? He was full of grace and truth because he was full of God, 100% equal with the Father in his nature. Are you ready to get your mind blown right here? Now watch this second part. In Christ, you have been brought what? Been brought to what? You've been brought to centaur land? Jacked up, half this, half that? No, you've been brought what? To fullness. Fullness of Christ in you. Fullness of grace and truth through Christ in you. Now, does that make us God? No, because Christ is our mediator between us and God, and he does not share his divinity with us, but he allows us to partake of it uh, as it relates to his morality. And I'm going to show you that in just a moment on how we're going to live this out. But Christ took 
part of the Father's actual nature. So this is where sometimes people try to get slick, and they'll use a verse like this, so be ready, because there are Mormons out there. They make the opposite error of the Jehovah Witnesses. The Jehovah Witnesses will say, Jesus wasn't the fullness of deity. He was partial. He was a lesser deity. That's how they'll describe him, as a lesser God. But the Mormons come along and go, oh, man, Christians, we're down with you. We believe Jesus was fully God. Oh, yeah, and he made us to be fully God, and we get to be like Jesus, a God of our own planet. That's how this whole thing ends, is we get goddess wives, and then we produce God children. We all gods. The Mormons are polytheists, and they will use a scripture like this. So we have to differentiate between that air of sharing in God's nature as God or sharing in his character. Do you, you all want to see the difference there? Okay, because this is how we are going to partake of the nature of God. Go to First Peter, uh, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1 is going to give us the understanding of how we partake of the divine nature, but it's through the morality of God not sharing in actually his divine attributes, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere. That's what a polytheist thinks. But notice what it says here. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly what? Life through our knowledge of him. So you see, God gives you divine power, not that you can be all-knowing, all-powerful, that you can be a God-man. No, but that you can be godly. In what way are we God-like? That's all that word godly means, is God-like. Which way are we godly, godly-like, when we do the things that please him? Now look right down here, and it says what pleases him because he doesn't want us to have uh, the corrupt nature. He wants us to share in his divine nature. Let me just keep reading it. Let me just go through the whole context here. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godlike life, a godly life, which I'm going to say in just a moment is full of grace and truth. Do you guys get where I'm going with this? Okay, we're going to live like God. How did God live when he was on this earth? Full of grace and truth, full of love and justice, full of love and holiness. We can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? He's given us his power to do this. Now notice, he's given us his power to live a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, so he's doing it for his own sake, that through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. So I call this dancing with the divine, keeping step with the spirit, not stepping on his toes, amen, but dancing with the divine, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Okay, so there's a participation in the divine nature. What is that for? For me to have power like God, creative abilities like God, to be all places like God? No, so that I can escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. So I share in the God-likeness of his morality, not in his power, not in the essence of him being all-knowing. Does everybody get the difference? Okay, for this very reason, add to your faith what? Goodness. This is how we're God-like. This is how we participate in the fullness of God. Add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, or brotherly love, as another translation says, and then love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Now, going back to this passage that we were looking at in Colossians, look at this. 
For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in a bodily form. That's why he could control wind and waves. That's why he could receive worship. That's why he could know past and present, and that's why he said he would shepherd people and bring their souls with him to heaven. That's God. Are you guys checking with me? But now it says in Christ, in his divine nature, we get to participate. We get to participate in something that brings us as well to fullness. So do we get brought to the fullness of the God power, the God ability like Christ had? Do we receive worship? Do we have a kingdom that we rule over? Are we a Messiah-like figure? Absolutely not. But in the way we are brought to fullness is through the character of Christ, grace and truth, love and justice. Can I hear an amen from somebody here? Now, what does this look like in our everyday life? Let's make it practical here today. Let's say you're in sin. You have an issue, right? Like we all have them. They come from time to time. And let's say you make the wrong decision and you sin. Okay, so the sin is a temptation at first, and then you give into it. Now you have sin. What are we supposed to do at that moment? Are we only supposed to think about God's love and just that he'll forgive us? No. Are we only supposed to think about God's holiness and God's justice? No. We're supposed to think and sing about both. Just as it said, sing about God's love, sing about God's justice. That's what we're supposed to think on. So here is some examples in Christianity that I think will be helpful, and I want to tie it to some more passages. But I just want to you know, stop here and make it practical. When I first became a Christian, like most young men, I struggled with lust. I'm not going to ask young men or young ladies to raise their hand, but if I were to be honest, uh, we, we were all to be honest, most of us probably have struggled with lust, okay? And like most young men, I had ways of dealing with the problem of lust. It was sinful, okay? It was not right. Now, as I grew in Christ, I was a Christian. Somebody say he was a Christian. Thank you. Nobody wants to look me in the eyes now, but that's okay. It's a little bit weird. I'll just look above your heads as I talk, okay? As a Christian, I began to feel convicted about sexual perversion in the mind. And as uh, I was told by one preacher, what we used to do as sinners is we would take pictures during the day and develop them at night, okay? And that's sinful. And that's what I would do. I would have all this lust in my mind from things that I had saw during the day. And I would sin against the Lord. And so I would ask God to forgive me. And I would, you know, accept his forgiveness. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that he loved me. But I didn't understand the holiness of God. I just pretty much understood, well, you know, God forgave me, I'm good, and if I mess up again, God's love is there. I thought about God's grace as it was almost a license to sin, and we've talked about that here. I looked at it as an excuse to keep sinning because I have pretty much figured it out early on, like if, if God loves me and God made a way for me to be forgiven, and then if I sin, he'll forgive me as long as I ask, well, I, I think I know how this works, I'll just keep sinning and keep asking for forgiveness. And I thought that that was normal Christianity. Somebody say, until. Until the Holy Spirit started to get grieved and no longer was operating in the same level of patience that he once was. Because the Holy Spirit's a person. And he deals with us according to what we can handle. And so at first, the Holy Spirit was gentle. And the Holy Spirit was beckoning me to repent. Because you have to remember, as a sinner, lust was commonplace. Lust was not something I ever felt was wrong. Lust was something I enjoyed and bragged about. How many know what I'm talking about there? Sinners brag about their lust. And so I look at that now as the Holy Spirit saying, Son, I'm glad you're convicted and you repent. 
And so the Holy Spirit would, would almost make me feel comforted that I would do that. Like, okay, you, you heard my voice, that it was wrong, and you repented. Good job. You know, like I would hear the Holy Spirit do that. But as I got slick with the Holy Spirit and said, well, I see how this works. I'm just going to sin. You'll forgive. And then I'll feel that good feeling again from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit began to not give me that good feeling. I began to realize that the Holy Spirit was getting grieved. And even though I knew I had prayed and I had asked God for forgiveness, there was something that was still there. And so I began to pray and ask the Lord, God, what is going on in my heart? And he began to bring me to scriptures, and I'll bring it to you right here. It's a famous one. Go to the Our Father of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 of the learning how to pray here. He began to bring me to scriptures like this, the Holy Spirit. Somebody say, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows how to speak to us. The Holy Spirit would bring me to a scripture like this and say, Joe, you're not asking me to lead you out of temptation. You're only asking me to deliver you from evil. You're waiting till it's too late. And so the Holy Spirit began to prick my heart and say, Joe, you need to grow up. You need to ask me for help before you give in to that sin. Well, then what did I need to see in that moment? Yes, the love of God, but I also need to start to see the holiness of God. That God was asking me to do something that I knew I could do by his strength and his power. And if I was to not want to do it, he showed me another scripture, and he showed this to me. It was one of the first scriptures I memorized from the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 10, 26. He began to teach this to me, and I hope that some of you have already experienced these kinds of things because the Holy Spirit knows the Bible. How many know he knows it even if you don't? He'll remind you of it one way or another. He'll get you to open it up. He'll get you to start reading it, and you'll get hit by it one way or another. He began to show this to me. If we deliberately keep on sinning, and I'll put it in you know, personal language here. The Holy Spirit was telling me, Joe, if you keep on sinning after you receive the knowledge of the truth, no more sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Ooh, somebody say judgment. Come on. And of raging fire. Come on. That will consume the enemies of God. So the Holy Spirit began to speak to me and say, Joe, this is a dangerous game to play. And it wasn't that the Holy Spirit was less loving. He loved me the same. He doesn't change. Let me just pause here and talk about God's love. God loves you as much today in church and your nice church clothes as he did when you were doing the worst things in the world. Okay? The love of God did not change when you changed. God's love remains the same. So let's just settle that. But what the Holy Spirit was telling me is that, Joe, this thing of you sinning and repenting and not asking for my help in between to deliver you and to keep you away from the temptation, you just want to get into it and then get delivered. You don't want to avoid the temptation. This will actually lead you down the road of destruction. And then I began to fear the Lord more than I was. I didn't fear him in the way like, oh, I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell. But I began to realize that what God wants from me is not just my repentance when I sin, but he wants my obedience not to sin. That if I truly loved him, I truly feared him, then I would understand that the grace is there for when I really tried. 
From really, from when I gave it my best, but yet I was weak. And then I would understand how to grow and mature, but not from my sins that I was deliberately, continually doing against his will for my life. Has anybody ever been there before? Has anybody ever had the Holy Spirit talk to you? Come on. And that's where I began to realize what I'm teaching to you now, and I hope that we're getting, is that it's a both and. But then there was another time. Here's another example, but on the flip side, where I was under condemnation. Somebody say guilt. So I was uh, a young, on-fire, single Bible college student, 19 years old, living in the dorms, no responsibilities. I was blessed by my parents to have my full college tuition paid for so I didn't have to have a secular job outside of doing Bible college. All I had to do was, you know, preach, pray, and, you know, plug away. And uh, they would give me an allowance, and I would, you know, still spend it all on a bunch of stupid stuff and live off ramen. I don't know why, but they gave me a car. I had a car, insurance paid for. All of these things, just go to college, Joe. Somebody say, blessed. So what did I do with that time? Well, I began to pray two hours a day. I began to witness three to four times a week on top of my studies and the other practicums that I did, which was practical ministry. I then began to write some of those things. Now eventually became books. I was involved in a lot of different other people's ministries. And so if you were to look at my life, I probably was devoting about 18 hours to Jesus every single day, just straight 18 hours. And some of you are like, you better have done that because that's what your parents paid for, right? But how many know that was still my choice, though. I could have blew off all that time and lived as a spoiled little brat. But by God's grace, I wasn't spoiled. I was nice, okay, with my little Saturn that I had that my parents gave me, little ramen noodles. I would share it. And we could go If we were in, you know, friends, then I would take you out in my Saturn. We would have fun. But life began to change as I began to get older. And then at that point, I began to realize, well, man, I can't pray two hours a day like I used to. And you know what? I can't go to these ministries like I used to. Oh, in the second year of Bible college, I fasted three days a week. Every week, fasted for three days, only liquids. So Monday afternoon to Thursday afternoon, I would fast. And so as life began to change and I began to have different responsibilities, I began to come under condemnation. And my own conscience would say to me, I don't think God's as proud of you today as he was yesterday because you didn't pray two hours and you're not fasting four days a week anymore and you're not helping your friend's ministry anymore and you're not preaching three days at Bourbon Street anymore and you're not writing like you used to. Has anybody ever been there before? Has anybody ever done something for God and then a season came and you couldn't do those same things and then now what do you do? You start to feel that condemnation because all you're thinking about is how holy God is. And, and, and yeah, I shouldn't be doing this other thing. I should be preaching some more. I should be doing this some more because it's not as spiritual as these other things because I started becoming a pastor and I had to do these different pastoral things and it didn't feel as spiritual as fasting and preaching on Bourbon Street. And guess what God did? He began to give me the blessing of a clear conscience. Go with me to 1 John chapter 1. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, please. I actually have shared this with some um, overachievers. How many overachievers in the kingdom of God? Any, nobody? Okay, two or three of you? Like nobody raised their hand on that one. No, man, but I, I have had, I have been an overachiever in the kingdom of God, a, a sense of I have to do all of these different things. Let's see here. It might be First uh, John. 
Let me see. I'm going to give this to you on the spot here today. I'm sharing a lot of these things from my heart. Yeah, here it is. Watch this. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Oh, this is, this is a little bit different. No, let's go to 1 John. I believe it's going to be, I believe it's going to be, um, it talks, uh, somebody look up uh, conscience in 1 John, and, I, and I'll try to find it right here. I want you to see this. It's either conscience, Lord, help me here. Oh. I just shared this with this brother not too long ago. Our hearts condemn us. Look up the word condemn in 1 John. If our hearts don't condemn us, is it right here in the love pet? 320. Thank you, my brother. Yes, here it is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Can I explain this verse to you in a way that probably most of you have never heard before? I wish I could bring the mic around to every one of you and ask you what this means. Because most Christians do not know what this means right here. As I've been doing Bible studies and pastoring over the years, most Christians do not know this. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts? Well, what in the world would my heart be condemning me over if I'm already a Christian, somebody might say, well, it's our sin. I'm feeling guilty of my sin. No, because sin is uh, conviction, and you should be feeling conviction over that. But where does a person who is a Christian who loves God begin to feel condemnation? See, a lot of times we put condemnation on the side of a guilty conscience because we have sinned. And oftentimes, my friends, you have to understand this. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is the condemnation of you feeling you're not doing enough. Do you see the difference? That is an important distinguishment. Otherwise, you will not think God has a word for you in those times, and he does. There is a shame that you feel when you sin, but that is not what the Bible is talking about most of the time. Like in Romans chapter 8, when it talks about there is no more condemnation, it is talking about those who have tried to live by the Jewish law but failed. It is not talking to the one just willfully sinning, doing whatever they want, and now he's trying to pat them on the back going, hey, don't condemn yourself. I know we in the church, we use that language a lot, but I just want to show you again in Romans before I even go here to 1 Corinthians. But if you go to Romans chapter 8, that is not the language. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the condemnation coming from? The condemnation is coming from that he is not able to keep God's law. Does everybody get that? It is to the one who feels like I'm not doing enough. So I want everybody to get this. The one that feels like they're not doing enough is falling under the guilt of condemnation. I'm not saying it doesn't apply to those who sin and feel shame. Please don't hear me that way. That you can apply it to that. But I always believe there's a first context. The first context of condemnation in the Bible is to overachievers. It's to people like Paul who say they were Pharisees of Pharisees, that they did everything they could by the law, but at the end of the day, they still weren't good enough. They were condemned. Church kids, this is to people who feel the pressure in ministry. 
This is to people who have been raised a certain way, and at times, maybe you haven't lived this way. So go back to my situation. I am dealing with this condemnation, not because I'm sinning. Does everybody get that? I'm not sinning now because I'm pastoring more, evangelizing less. I'm not sinning now because I'm actually starting to have a social life to rest my body instead of burning out, which one of the times I had a a heat stroke in the middle of Louisiana summer because I was on a three-day fast while preaching a crusade. God had to tell me to go to the beach. God had to tell me to eat something. Okay, are you tracking with me? My wife's clapping because it became my favorite beach in the world, Pensacola Beach. I had to learn to take a day off. Okay, but while I was going to the beach, I was feeling that people were going to hell and that I wasn't witnessing and that when I was eating the seafood, I wasn't fasting. Does everybody get that? And Christ brought me to this scripture to say, you're not seeing my love. You see my holiness, but you don't see my love. And then this is what he told me, and it comes right out of the scripture. But Joe, I see your heart. Now, that's where you use that correctly. A lot of times people say, well, God knows your heart. And for most of them, God sees your dirty little heart. God knows your heart, and it's wicked. Okay? God knows your heart. You meant so well. No, you didn't. You're wicked through and through. Your heart is evil. But this, this, this needs to be heard by somebody today because you can, at times, only see the holiness of God. And you forget that Jesus made wine at a wedding, that Jesus knew how to sleep on a boat, that Jesus knew how to get alone and be by himself. And at that time, you need to know his love is greater than the guilt and condemnation you deal with. Do you see that? Just as his holiness is greater than the sin that you deal with, and he'll put the fear of God in you to want to live holy. So how do we go through our lives? Let me end it on a scripture right here that I think will bless everybody as Lawrence comes. Thank you for your patience today. This was a little bit more personal than... uh, than other sermons that I've preached before. But I want you to go here, and I want you to see how to live by the Spirit. Because remember, Jesus was the fullness of grace and truth. And he had the Spirit upon him like a dove, and he was able to go in all the different places the Father wanted him to be. So he knew when to be at the wedding, and he knew when to be at the synagogue. You have to know how to operate in the love of God and in the holiness of God and have them joined together to be full of both, and to participate and to dance with the divine and not be under guilt and condemnation, nor avoid conviction. Conviction is good when you're being led by the Holy Spirit. It turns into condemnation when you're trying to be an overachiever. When you don't have the fear of the Lord, you'll call conviction condemnation and not live holy. When you don't have the love of God, you'll live under condemnation, not cut your hair, wear a bonnet in church, and drive a horse and buggy because you feel you can't do any of the modern things without being sinful. Religion kills, spirit gives life. Let let me give you an example of this one more. This is one more example before I read this awesome passage, how to live it out. So later on in life, way later on, this was probably maybe seven years ago, I'm in ministry now, married, wife, and kids. And God taught me a profound lesson about this grace and truth, love and justice, love and holiness. I was keeping up with two pastors. One was a Joel Osteen wannabe, but I knew him, and he was like an older brother to me, so I kind of looked up to him. He preached in the days of my Bible college. But this man was 
pastoring a huge mega church. And it was growing and growing and growing to the point where he built, I think they called it a dome or a stadium, something like it was huge. And the entire wall of this stadium, I think it was like 5,000 seat sanctuary, was one big video screen, man. I mean, it was nice. It was huge. It was big. Nothing wrong with being a pastor of a big church. We want to be big one day too, right? Like 100,000. Come on. But we want to do it right. So I was tracking with him. And then Somebody here locally, I just won't mention the name just to keep them both anonymous, huge, huge church as well, but instead of being the next Joel Osteen, this guy preached like it was like 1920. He would slick back his hair, always have a suit on, preach out of the King James. Women had to wear long dresses. I'll just give you a hint. They pick up children in buses, and they bring them somewhere but it's still considered local, but it's really in Indiana. I'll just give you that as a hint, okay? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about now. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. And so I'm just like a lover of the word, and, and believe it or not, every now and then I'll give Joe Lostein a listen to. I'll listen to Joseph Prince. Even these, I don't agree with everything they say. We try to keep you guys away from always ingesting their messages, but I don't mind listening to them time to time. I just want to see why I have a job. Amen? I'll listen to Joe Lostein and be like, okay, now Lord help me to preach the opposite of that. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. So I'll listen to it, but, but normally what do I hear? Like when I hear that, I just hear, you just talked about one side. You just talked about how loving God is. And all, you didn't talk about the holiness. That's how I hear it, right? So I'd always keep up with him. And then the other brother I used to love to listen to because it would scare the hell out of me. You know, like any temptation I would ever have, it would be like, oh dear Lord, hell is hot. Because you would listen to this preacher preach. You guys know what I'm talking about. If you've heard a preacher like that preach out to King James and he would just preach, you know. And I was like, okay, I need a little bit of this in my diet. So on my own, I had a little bit of, you know, the grace and I had the truth. If you guys are tracking with me, on my own. Both of them cheated on their wives, I believe, within 60 days of each other. Both of them lost their ministries. One of them went to jail because it was with a minor. Okay? So now watch the lesson that the Lord told me. The Lord told me, look at this man's life. That's the Joel Osteen wannabe. Look at how much he understood my love. He, he talked about my love every day. Every time he preached, all he talked about how gracious I was, how loving I was, but he never feared me. And he had an affair with an intern. Now this one over here, all he did was talk about who's doing this and that. He was always on something. He was preaching against those who use modern translation. All he ever wanted to do was emphasize how holy I am. But he never talked about how loving I was. He fell too. So the Lord then told me, he said, neither one of those are going to be able to save you because I didn't come half and half. Jesus said, I came full of grace and truth. He said, I came full. And he began to tell me, Joe, don't fall into the ditch where all you want is truth, but you never have any grace. Never fall into the ditch where all you want is grace, but you never want truth. Follow me in my fullness. Be like me. Be God-like. Be like me and how I was full of grace and full of truth. And then I began, I even told this to my wife, and I said, that's how I want to live. And that's why, before I even read this, I'm just going to just share a little bit more here. That's why I have no condemnation of putting up a picture of me wakeboarding. Because for almost 10 years, listen to me, for almost 10 years, I did nothing but preach and fast. 
And people ask me now, man, why did you just start in the 40s? And I tell them, because I was on the streets for 10 years, and I don't regret a day of it. But do you understand what I'm saying? Because I don't, I don't have condemnation now. When I go wakeboarding, I'm spending time with Jesus doing something that relaxes my mind. It's like the way I say it. It's like going to the wedding with Jesus. He ate and drank with sinners. I sit around these wakeboarders. I talk to them about the things they're into, and then I bring them to the gospel and the truth. You listening to me? At the same time, those same friends I go wakeboarding with, I'm not ashamed to show them that I preach in front of an abortion clinic for two hours to the death scorts, telling them that they're encouraging genocide and infanticide to a generation. You have to be able in your life to understand both. You have to know your Sabbath rest and to uh, you know rest hard, and you have to know how to work hard. You have to know how to be able to drink in the love of God and know that He loves you and that you can spend money on yourself and have a day off and treat yourself. And at the same time, you can't feel sorry for yourself when He tells you to give away 90% of what you have and live off the 10%, or to give up everything you have and go move into a neighborhood that's not the nicest, or to give away your car and to now have less or something. We have to be able to. To go to both because the Bible says here that we need to keep in step with the Spirit you know it it's the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit and to save time I won't read both of those lists but how do we know how to avoid this the flesh and to stay in the Spirit it says right here that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires since we live by the Spirit let us keep in step with the Spirit you see the secret to understanding God's love and God's holiness is where the Spirit is leading you and where the Spirit is guiding you for somebody right now, them watching your dedication unto the Lord, they may think that's legalism. When people saw me going hard after God like that, they would come up to me and they would say, Sonny, when I was young like you, I did that. Now I don't anymore. And there may be truth to that. Maybe, yeah, maybe you used to go hard like that like I did. I used to give 18 hours to those things. Maybe I don't do it like that anymore. But here's the thing. It's I'm always where God wants me to be. So what that person should have said to me instead of discouraging me is you always have to know your seasons and the reasons. Stay in step with the Spirit, son. One day you're going to be with witnessing 10 hours a day. The next day you're going to be doing your ABCs with your children in your backyard. You know, one day you're doing this, next day you're going to do that. Stay in step with the Spirit. One day you're going to fast for three days, you know, one season you're going to fast three days a week. Another season is you're going to feast three days a week. I'm being serious with you. When I was fasting three days a week, you can ask my roommate. I will say this with tears in my eyes right now. I'm, I know it's funny when you hear it the way I said it, but listen. You can ask my roommate. You can ask the people that I went to Bible college with. How well did you know Joe and how much time did he spend with you? My own roommate will tell you, Joe barely ever talked to me because I was fasting all the time. That's all I was doing, man. I didn't have time for them. And why was that? Let's be real. Because in my former life as a sinner, what was my number one temptation to sin was peer pressure and friends. So God pulled me away from everything, everything. You can see me in pictures. Some of you should ask my wife to show them to you. You can see in pictures my friends, co-ed, girl and guys, it's kind of all like how you guys do here, all like kind of arms around each other, being next to each other, taking a picture, and you can see me in a suit standing next to them. I am serious. 
I was an 80-year-old in a 20-year-old body, man. I remember one of my friends in Bible college said, can you come preach at my youth group? I came and preached at her youth group in a suit with a King James Bible. Seriously, I should probably tag up one of the first messages I ever preached. It was recorded. I'll put it up. You guys are going to be like, whoa, he was crazy. I'm telling you, I don't know other than the Holy Spirit what snapped. I was a long hair, skater, smoking weed, Cypress Hill wannabe. But when I got saved, somehow I became an old southern gentleman. I am so serious. You think dressing up like this is how I started? Ten years, all I wore was suits. I went to Bible college, sat in the front row wearing slacks with dress shoes and my hair slicked back while my friends were coming casual, being told to take off their hats. And we both had the same past. I didn't even listen to Christian hip-hop for almost ten years. I didn't watch a non-Bible movie. I'm not even talking about Lord of the Rings, CS. I didn't watch a, if it wasn't Jesus' life or a book about the Bible or something like that, I didn't watch movies for almost eight to ten years. The first movie I ever watched was Lord of the Rings after almost 10 years of not watching any movies. I didn't listen to secular music till almost after 15 years of serving Christ. So some of you all come into this grace and space and you think this is the way it is for everybody. It's not that way. That's why when I meet people that are like me, that you are, you, you have that kind of a conscience, I never want you to feel less than. Like we're going to tease and make fun of you. Come in a suit. Read your King James. You understand? I, don't, I, I understand you. You're not doing that to impress me. You're not doing that to impress others. You're doing that because you don't want to dress like you used to. You don't want to read anything that reminds you of what you, you, you'd rather learn English words from the 1600s than to get a new living translation and read it like how they do on the streets. You, I understand you. That was me. I didn't even want to listen to Christian hip hop. But God gave me grace over time. I started doing hip hop because I used to do rap back in the day. But where I'm going with this is you have to know where the Spirit's leading you. Because otherwise, you're going to despise your seasons, forget the reasons, and then you're going to start judging others. And so people looked at me back then doing all of this, and they thought I was legalistic. No, it was real. It was like, you know what? If I'm not dressed in a suit right now, and I start hugging you, I'm going to want to have sex with you. I'm being honest. Some of my friends, they started going to the beach early. You see, remember, I told you God had to tell me to go to the beach years later. But I remember these guys coming from my Bible school going, man, we go to the beach now. We met some Christian girls. All of them got kicked out for having sex outside of marriage. Yeah, so I was weird. I get it. But I finished Bible college with a clean reputation. Are you listening to me by, by God's grace? So yeah, I looked stupid in front of all you guys being cool at that minute by praying and fasting while you guys were feasting. But it wasn't my time. Now seasons like this, I try to make time to do all of those things. Okay, who can I bring to do hobbies with? You know, okay, these are my hobbies. Who in the church likes? Okay, let's go do this. Okay, with the elders and deacons, let's have them over. We try to recycle everybody through every quarter, bring them over to our house. You know, we're not playing favorites. Become an elder or deacon, you'll be able to come over, okay? And uh, that's the way we do it in my family's house. And then I try to make time to do this. And then at the same time, I go witnessing. I go preaching. I make time to write. And that's what the Bible means by keeping step with the Spirit. As I said from the beginning, Jesus, he made time to eat with sinners. He knew how to love on them, but he also knew to turn a temple upside down. So which one was Jesus? Was Jesus the friend of sinners or the one wrecking the whole temple? He was both, full of grace and truth. And so in your life, as we get ready to leave out of here, altar workers, would you come please? I want you to have the ability to discern and to mature. And some of you, it may come more natural than, than it does for others because some of you live a balanced life. Some of you may be like me, though, and you're used to extremes. Extremities are the things that will burn you out over time. 
You have to learn how to balance it. Because if all you are is one or the other, man, I'm either hardcore Jesus or I'm going to start sinning again, you're not going to grow in your faith. As I, as I began to grow, I began to realize, oh, okay, I can go to the beach. And as I've shared with you guys before, the first time I went to the beach, how many went to the beach after being a Christian and you asked yourself, how in the world did I ever do this before? Am I one of the only ones? I'm telling you the truth. The first time I ever went to the beach as a Christian, I looked across the people and I go, man, I don't belong here. I'm telling you, I, I'm telling you, I looked across, it was like spring break. I looked across there and I said, dude, I don't belong here, man. I said, where on this beach can I go that's not here? Do you know that when I, we would take children and young people on retreats, everybody had to wear shirts and shorts. Everybody, boys and girls, shirt and shorts. Some of y'all free right now trying to be a, a what is this, uh, a Sports Illustrated model. Y'all got to check yourselves. Y'all got to go back and read the Bible a few times, you know. And I know some people are like, well, it doesn't mean that to me. Okay, cool. And just make sure you're not flaunting it out there, okay? I try to be gracious with everybody. We try to let everybody have that grace and space because maybe you are called to be that. I don't know, Okay. And I always got to remind, I always got to remind the fellas, even though taking off your shirt is not a sin, still be careful because it might cost somebody to sin. As I used to say in the church, when I first would take off my shirt, the girls would be like, "Woo, you a pastor, look at you. That's what I would say, so I got embarrassed because I was, I, was, I was a skinny young pastor. Now I take off my shirt with the fellas when we out. They're like, oh, look at pastor, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? Oh, pastor. Yeah, man, life will change you. Life will change you. So here's the thing. You better guard yourself. You better know reasons and seasons. Stay in step with the Spirit. Before we stand up and get ready to dismiss, let's just pray right now on our own. If you don't know Jesus, ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. He'll show you grace and truth, love and justice today. He'll show that to you. Ask Him to be the Lord of your life, to forgive you of sins. Confess Him to be the Lord of everything, not just the church things, but everything. For the rest of us who are already Christians, look at your life. Are you leaning one way or the other more than you should? Are you under condemnation because you never feel like you're good enough, because you're always thinking about the holiness of God, and you don't see feasting with the Lord as spiritual? You feel like if you're not working, praying, fasting, doing something, being busy, then you're not really pursuing God. Ask Him to show you what His love is about. Ask Him to balance out that holiness understanding with love. And today, those who, who just see God as always their Abba Father, that's never disappointed in them, that always loves and supports, and yet you use that as opportunities to sin and not change and to stay where you are, ask the Lord to show you His holiness today. Ask Him to show you what Judgment Day is going to be like, even for Christians, when we're held accountable to the things we did in this world. Come on, a few moments before we stand up and worship just in our own place of prayer right now. Lord, show me how to be full of grace and truth, how to be like you. I will sing of the love and justice of God forever. Anthony, would you just, uh, brothers, would you put up Psalm 101 for them? And then Anthony, pick anything in there, please, and just sing it out as we just pray in these next few moments before we go. Just anything that sticks out to you, brother, sing that from your heart, please. Because the Bible says, I will sing of the love and justice of God. I'm going to declare both of them. In just a few moments, we'll stand, but I want you just to be prepared today 
to walk on that path of holiness, not swayed by one side or the other, to be confident that God's got you. Because if you try to do this without the Spirit, you'll beat yourself up on both occasions. God's here to strengthen you. God's here to encourage you. God's here to lift you up. He wants you to know holiness, and he wants you to know love. If that's you today, would you just raise up your hands with me right now and say, I receive the love and the holiness of God before we go. I receive it, God. Hallelujah. Come on. This is a song he's just making up. If you can catch on, sing it with him or sing it in your own words. Sing a new song from your own heart. Worship him today. See? 